that we are willing to take on this fight for as long as it takes and we are going to win. I don't know how long it'll take, but we will win. And so that's a sort of interactive expert system. That's different from a generative system where it's going to actually sort of out of whole cloth create or mimic a performance. It's like the puppet is now suddenly puppeting itself. You know, they, it was all just thousands of people starving themselves in front of Governor Corbett's office on Broad Street. A quote from Kiyoshi's mother. I only had him for 18 years. The people of Philadelphia had him for the remaining 39 years of his life. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, TV writer Sasha Stewart talks to the Working People Podcast about the recent changes in the industry that have led to the ongoing strike, as well as the energy on the picket line. And on the SAG-AFTRA podcast, how SAG-AFTRA is tackling the challenges of generative AI. Then, Philly's left turn on the Dig podcast. And we wrap up with a look at the Forrest Gump of activism, gay rights, HIV-AIDS, anti-war, and civil rights activist Kiyoshi Kuryomiya on the Labor John podcast, one of our very newest members. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. So as y'all heard, we've got Sasha on the line today, and I am so grateful to her because this has been a hell of a week for Sasha and her co-workers, I'm sure, unless you've been living under a rock. But if you listen to this show, you no doubt have heard about the Writers Guild strike. I wanted to just toss things over to you and ask if, if A, we can start by just getting to know a little more about you and your kind of path into the industry as a writer. And tell us about, from your experience and the folks that you are working alongside and in WGA East or and West, what have y'all been going through over this, these past couple years or even this past decade? Um, What are the sort of crucial changes that folks who are listening to this should really be paying attention to? And what led to this strike? I joined the union in 2014. So in the almost 10 years I've been in the union, is I've been seeing the period of employment for writers going down and the increase of unemployment, that sort of gap between employment, go up. So instead of a writer being working for 52 weeks out of the year or working for 40 weeks out of the year, we're seeing writers working for 20 weeks out of the year. 20 weeks if they're lucky. (laughs) We're also seeing them work for 12 weeks out of the year, 10 weeks out of the year. We're seeing them not work for a long enough period of time to gain their health insurance or to keep their health insurance. And the a number for what a writer has to make in order to, to or what we say, get their year, make their year in order to get health insurance is not some sort of pie in the sky number. It's a little bit over $40,000. That's an average middle-class amount of money to make per year. And that's what we're trying to make sure the writers make at least that amount of money so they can keep their health insurance. And what has been happening is that it's not that these shows have, their budgets have gone down as the season orders have gone down. The budgets have gone up as the season orders have gone down. So clearly they're investing a lot more in each episode. 
and they're expecting really incredible writing for each episode. And yet they're asking writers to write those incredible episodes in shorter and shorter and shorter periods of time. Another aspect that is harming writers is that they're asking writers to do all of this work, create these brilliant shows in in a short period of time in a room. And then they're not allowing those writers to go to set to produce their episodes, to produce the TV series. And that's really harmful too, not only because, again, it adds up to less work. If you're only employed for the, let's say, 12 weeks out of this room, and then you're not employed for the, let's say, 20 weeks that it takes to shoot the show, then that's a huge gap in employment. Uh, You're also waiting for the show to come out before anybody knows about it. And so you're trying to get a job while promising people, like, I worked on this really cool show. (laughs) It's going to come out. You're going to love it. Please hire me for your next show, for another show, please. And you have these big, long gaps in your IMDb, and you're like, I was working, but it didn't come out. Or the show may never come out because there might be such a big, long gap between the writing and the production that you have six different executives at the studio. And then by the time the last executive goes there, they're like, what are these scripts? What is this? No, I'm into robots now. I'm not into Frankenstein. So (laughs) Frankenstein's out, robots are in. And then suddenly all that work is for effectively nothing. And what that also includes is that you're not learning the skills. Writers are writer producers, right? Like we don't just write, we write and we produce. That's how television is created. Specifically, this is TV writers and writers for scripted television and for comedy variety, any sort of what we call Appendix A as well, which is like daytime, soaps, etc. We all produce what we write. And we are expected as we climb the ladder in our careers to become better producers as well as better writers. And like you said, if we're alienated from the work of actually producing the series, that means that we're not even being trained to to do the job that we are inevitably going to do. And so that is also going to lead to uh, deterioration in quality of shows, because if you don't train your workforce, they can't do the work and you're also not paying them very well (laughs) for that work. So one of the other reasons why you're seeing that so many writers working for minimum, which is it's not supposed to be how it is, it's supposed to be the more experienced you are, the more money you make. But there's we have producers saying, you, you've never been on set. How can I possibly pay you a producing rate if we haven't been on set? And so that's not my fault. I haven't been on set. You haven't let me go to set. <laughs> you haven't paid for me to be on set. What am I supposed to do? And so it does feel like the companies are pushing us towards this model of, hey, come in, punch up a script written by an AI, and then punch out the clock at the end of the day, and then you'll never see whatever it was again. And what you're going to be putting in as a human being is, of course, going to be the heart and soul and honestly, logic of a script. And we're not even going to let you do anything with it. Sasha, um, a, I wanted to thank you for for giving me so much of your time after a week on the picket line when when things are are nuts over there. B, I wanted to just sort of round out by asking if you say a little bit about what the past week on the picket line has been. We have been seeing so much incredible solidarity from our fellow entertainment unions, um, also from our fellow non-entertainment unions across the country. Understand what we're going through, and it has been so heartening to see the Teamsters to see SAG, to see DGA, to see IATSE, our brothers and sisters and siblings there standing with us and in many cases not crossing picket lines and slowing down productions at their own risk in order to show 
true solidarity and to show that they are really standing with us because they see that it is our collective fight that we are fighting and that we right now honestly have the privilege to fight that fight and that we will stand with them as they go to the mat for their own contracts and just as they are standing with us. And so it has been an incredibly heartening week. The amount of turnout at all of the pickets has been well exceeded what we were anticipating, what we on council and the Writers Guild East were anticipating at the very least. Double, triple, quadruple the size that we were anticipating. The energy is high. People are fired up. They are all, we are all angry. <laughs> we are all angry at these corporations, but we also see the humanity in each other. We see that we are in community with each other. And we are so excited, honestly, to be with each other and to fight this fight together. And that is certainly something that the companies do not have. Uh, they absolutely are sniping at each other. They absolutely do not have solidarity with each other. And they can't even really understand what true solidarity is because they're not like us. They're not workers. And, and so I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what they're doing. They certainly have not come back to the table in any way, shape, or form. But I know that we are willing to take on this fight for as long as it takes, and we are going to win. I don't know how long it'll take, but we will win. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. And I'm Ben White here, Executive Vice President of SAG-AFTRA. Recently, Ben and I had the honor of participating in an illuminating PTEOE panel discussion about artificial intelligence or AI. That's right. The acceleration of AI has become a hot and contentious topic for many of us in the entertainment industry. And we wanted to explore how SAG-AFTRA members can safely engage in this burgeoning technology and make sure that they're benefiting from the opportunities it provides. Our guests included actor Crispin Freeman, who's been lending his voice to several TV shows and popular video game characters, including game franchises like Destiny, Overwatch, and The Last of Us Part II. We were also joined by actor, director, and consultant Sarah Elmale, best known for her roles in blockbuster games like Fortnite, Halo Infinite, and Gears 5. Sarah has also recently transitioned to a sought-after voice director for games like Fortnite and indie games like The Red Lantern. Ray Rodriguez, who is SAG-AFTRA's Chief Contracts Officer, also joined us. Duncan, can you lay the groundwork for us? Absolutely, Ben, and thanks for hosting this PTOE. I think this is going to be a fascinating topic. What's really sort of challenging our industry now is the advent of technology, again, called generative AI, which has the ability to actually create certain types of content. And the idea that we're going to basically have these sort of computer programs, computer algorithms, creating content in place of writers, actors, performers, directors, other creative talent within the industry. That's a new phenomenon, and it's something that we're all really concerned about. Well, Sarah and and then Chris, I'll just use one example of one game which had a big impact on everybody's hugely successful. Left for Dead um, is a zombie game. It's really fantastic. And it, it, it implemented something they like to call the director. And the director is, I think, by a classical definition, an AI, um, which uses you know feedback in order to tune your experience as a player. So it adapts as it, as it sort of watches you essentially play the game and enhances your experience. I do think that we can 
guess that it's being used for scratch voiceover, which means the temporary voiceover um, that is you know, put in place in order to pace, uh, you know, a potential cinematic or to pace level design, make sure that everything kind of fires individually, things like that to work with before you get the actor in. So that would be my guess. But again, as actors, the part of the problem is that we aren't part of that implementation. What Sarah was describing, how the game responds to how you play to it and, and adjusts to make your experience more enjoyable, that's closer to what we would call an expert system, a sort of interactive expert system. That's different from a generative system where it's going to actually sort of out of whole cloth create or mimic a performance. It's like the puppet is now suddenly puppeting itself. Ray, I'm curious to hear from you. What is SAG-AFTRA's position on the use of AI technology and what should members know to keep themselves protected? I think the most important element of SAG-AFTRA's position on the use of AI is that it needs to be done under a union contract. The SAG-AFTRA National Board recently adopted a resolution that uh, artificial intelligence and the generation of digital doubles of performances is a mandatory subject of bargaining, meaning that employers have to bargain with the union to acquire that right under the collective bargaining agreement before it, the employers can bargain with individual performers to acquire that rights in individual negotiations. So the most important element protecting performers is going to be a union agreement. And we have insisted that employers must bargain with us about this. For more information and resources from today's episode, please visit sagafter.org podcast. And if you gained any value from today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone else who might find value. If you haven't already, please tap that subscribe button and take a few seconds to rate and review this episode. And please follow SAG-AFTRA on our official social media channels. That's at SAG-AFTRA on all major platforms, including YouTube. The SAG-AFTRA podcast is produced and edited by Aaron Goddard and John Small. Supervising producers are Pamela Greenwald, Shira Reich, and Michael McNulty, with production and marketing support from Damon Romine, Jolie Cocante, Delaney Howard, Margot Giordano, Joe Mulgado, Mae Wong, Bernadine Robbins, and Maria Cabasis. The podcast is hosted by Ben Whitehair and me, yours truly, Duncan Crabtree-Ireland. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is part one of a two-part series on progressive city politics in two big American cities, Philadelphia and Chicago. Here's Helen Gim and Nikhil Saval. Helen Gim has been a public education organizer, city council member, and is now a candidate for mayor of Philadelphia. Nikhil Saval is a former labor activist, founder of Reclaim Philly, editor at N Plus One, and now Pennsylvania State Senator from District One, which covers South Philly and Center City. Helen Gim and Nikhil Saval, welcome to The Dig. Great to be with you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Thinking back to when I first met you two over a decade ago in Philly, Helen, you you were a leading public school advocate, and Nikhil, you did labor work for Unite Here, I believe, alongside being an editor at N Plus One. Now, Nikhil, you're a state senator, and Helen, 
you have served on city council and are now a front runner in a tight five-way mayor's race. To start off, how did you two, and more, more broadly, how did Philly social movements and the Philly left get from where they were at when I first met you to the point where they're at today? Philly's social movements were formed in communities and neighborhoods all across our city that dealt with the austerity politics and weak political infrastructure that reflected a lot of status quo politics and the moneyed interests that lined up, you know, around schools issues, around housing, around neighborhood displacements and around policing that really activated, transformed and energized a lot of communities to respond and um, grow in their power and continue to come together. The transformation of Unite Here in part through this process is sort of instructive. Then Governor Corbett had cut nearly a billion dollars from the state education budget, combined with uh, Mayor Nutter's own austerity policies, charter expansion, etc. You know, the school district was in was in deep crisis. They were closing a couple dozen schools, etc. And for Unite Here, an entire class of workers was being laid off. The union was pushed over time and pushed itself to, you know, its members went on hunger strike. These were cafeteria workers. Exactly. Cafeteria workers, student climate safety staff, you know, who, who worked the hallways in, the sco- in, in schools. You know, they, it was all just thousands of people starving themselves in front of Governor Corbett's office on Broad Street. It was a kind of militant action that I think the union hadn't really taken before or not any time recently. And I think they won. Ultimately, like those jobs were able to be won back. I mean, it was part of an overall effort to make the fight over what in this case was a contract fight and a jobs fight, a social justice fight, a fight over the fate of the school district. How do you two read current political conditions in the United States with all that unevenness between what's going on at local, state, in federal levels? Well, I mean, speaking just for myself, I have never really been anything more than a local movement activist. Like, I don't think that generally there's anybody who's going to fight harder for Philadelphia than Philadelphians themselves. Unless we create a plan and vision for ourselves and a real path on how to deliver those things, build out our own internal capacity, make sure that we're working on the ground on equity, racial justice you know, a real transformation of how people live. I think that you just, you don't get to where you're going to be. This speaks to a kind of fallacy, I think, that is you you hear being aired right now. And, and it's true in, you know, in so many different consti- like areas that somehow these things are opposed, right? You're an activist, you're a social movement partisan, you come out of social movements. How do you translate that into effective, you know, legislative work or executive action? And in fact, it's like, no, we've all been trained in like speaking to people who don't agree with us and building coalitions with pe- and not taking no as, as the automatic answer. And so we're trained in coalition building. We're trained in not in not accepting the status quo. And then that leads that makes means that you try to find creative solutions where there are obstacles and to to things that are that are visionary and that, you know, cannot, you know, supposedly can't be done. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. 
check out our vast archive at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Hello and welcome to the Labor John Podcast, where we unlock a door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight John. My name is young Sam James. I'm Gabe Christie. So what are we learning about tonight, Sam? Today we're going to learn about Kiyoshi Kuramaya. The Forrest Gump of activism. And most of this research has come from a, a interview from the Philadelphia LGBT History Project, 1940 to 1980, that was done by a gentleman named by Mark Stein. In 1961, he moved hmm. to Philadelphia simply because of its nickname, the City of Brotherly Love. That's true. <laughs> that's what he said. He attended the University of Pennsylvania and he joined the Students for a Democratic Society. For the Ooh. next few years, he frequented the city's gay bars and meetup spots, and he became acquainted with local gay and civil rights activists. On June 28, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in New York City's Greenwich Village. When the police became violent, so did the patrons and the surrounding community members. This event marked the beginning of the more radical gay liberation struggle. Now, following the riots, more gay rights organizations began to pop up nationwide. It was a meeting of the Homophile Action League that led... Kuramiya to form Philadelphia's Gay Liberation Front, a multiracial community activist group that worked closely with the Black Panther Party. And he would go on to represent uh, the Gay Gay Liberation Front at the Panthers' 1970 convention that was actually held at Temple University. As always, Kuramiya had a unique knack for activism. We'd go up to a line of cops with tear gas grenades and horses and clubs and link arms into a can-can. It really (laughs) threw him off guard. The GLF eventually folded into the Gay Activist Alliance, or GA, but not before they published their one and only issue of the Gay Dealer newspaper, which was funded partially by sales of the psychedelic MMDA. It was during the Mummers Parade, Gabe, on New Year's Day. Gabe, Mummers Parade, New Year's Day, 1971, that Kiyoshi Kuramiya ran out into the middle of the parade and handed a copy of the Gay Dealer to... Frank Rizzo? Frank Rizzo, friend oh, of the show, yes. who smiled, shook Kermia's hand, and put the dealer, the gay dealer, in his back pocket. The guy were beneficial in... Thank you for that, Gabe. I knew you were going to get that one. The guy were beneficial in providing mental health services, such as the gay switchboard hotline, and in 1972, helped establish Philadelphia's first official gay pride parade. He befriended Buckminster Fuller, and the two traveled the country together. In 1981, they co-wrote Critical Path, a book about the development of human civilization and economic history. 
Now, the title of the book is a project planning term that determines the time needed to complete a project. This experience helped Kuramiya create the Critical Path newsletter in 1987, which was one of the first widely available resources for HIV treatment in the country. These newsletters were mailed not only to thousands of people worldwide, but also to those who were incarcerated and suffering from the disease. That year, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, or ACT UP, was established in New York. ACT UP is a grassroots organization formed to combat the AIDS pandemic through direct action. After founding the Philadelphia chapter of ACT UP, Kuramiya turned his attention to the burgeoning internet. Over the next few years, he transformed his news- newsletter into what would become one of the first websites to provide information on HIV-AIDS treatment and research. His Critical Path project not only disseminated much-needed information, but also provided free internet access and a 24-hour hotline for Philadelphians. In 1989, Kuramiya was diagnosed with AIDS. But this only intensified his mission to combat the deadly disease that had already taken the lives of over 100,000 Americans. In the late 90s, Kuramiya was the editor of the nation's first standard of care for HIV patients, which was published by ACT UP Philadelphia. Kuramiya passed away of complications from cancer on May 10th, 2000, one day after his 57th birthday. And I would like to end this with two quotes. One, first, uh, by Emiko Kuramiya, Kiyoshi's mother. I only had him for 18 years. The people of Philadelphia had him for the remaining 39 years of his life. And then I would like to end this with a quote from Kiyoshi himself. I'm a 20-year metastatic lung cancer survivor and a 15-year AIDS survivor, and I really believe that activism is therapeutic. So that was Kiyoshi Kuramiya. That's awesome. It is. What a guy. Yeah. Either he called himself or someone called him the Forrest Gump of activism, and I thought there was the there was not a term that was more succinct than that. Yeah. He's like, man, he was That's the Johnny Cash. He's been life. everywhere, man. He was everywhere, man. <sighs> And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. It's just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 100 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, be sure to check out and subscribe to our new Labor Radio Podcast Daily, which starts Monday, May 15th, and features a clip from one of the Labor Radio Podcast Network shows, plus a labor quote of the day and labor history for that date. Just search for Labor Radio Podcast Daily. The Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock, urging you, stay active, and of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>